to another episode of The Ladies' Room. Joining me is the fabulous Jane McManus. I'm Julie DeCaro. We are your hosts, your guides in The Ladies' Room, the person who sits by the door and hands you a towel and then (laughs) wants you to tip them when you didn't really need their help in the first place. Um, Welcome. So we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about. We have exciting news in the WNBA that Kelly Loeffler has exited the building. I feel like we should have celebration music. Well, and even better, uh, you know, part of that ownership, new ownership group includes Renee Montgomery, who's an actual WNBA player and, you know, and who has a podcast and who is a, somebody who's been a real voice on issues of equity all summer and beyond, you know, well into the past, has a tradition and a history of that. And I think that's important because it means that the the voice of anti-Black Lives Matter is now being replaced by someone who can fully embody the spirit uh, and direction of the WNBA. I could not agree more. And the power that the WNBA has had, I mean, we we talk about, when we talk about, you know, leading the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, we talk so often about, you know, the NFL or the NBA, but really the WNBA, and we've said this before, I mean, they started this movement back in 2015 in the sports world. And, um, you know, they basically made Raphael Warnock, who's now a U.S. senator, a player in this when they all wore those vote Warnock shirts. I think at that point he was voting nine percent. Um, he was polling at nine percent voting. He was polling at nine percent um, and he wound up winning. And I think that the power that these women have in the way that they have used their platform for good and for inclusion and equity and making the world a better place is something that is such a tonic to see in in what we've gone through the past four years. So I'm thrilled to see it. I'm glad Kelly Loeffler is out of the WNBA. Um, Imagine playing for someone who denies that your skin color, that you as a human being matter. I mean, well, she, you know, she tried to parse it a little bit more subtly than that. She was talking about, she would talk about the black lives matter organization as opposed to the concept of Black Lives Mattering. And I think she did that deliberately so that she could say things like, I mean, she said some really, you know, I I mean, I would say pretty crazy or just, you know, in such bad faith things such as that Black Lives Matter doesn't want Jesus in the church. And, and, you know, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And it just is so deeply offensive to, you know, people who are deeply committed to equity. I mean, what I love about the WNBA and and the way that they inserted themselves into those Georgia Senate races is that you now have a group of predominantly Black women who are somewhat responsible for having a Black vice president have to go into the Senate to break a tie. Yep. And that is, I mean, I just, I love the way that that is an expression of power, but this is not over. And Georgia is already passing some legislation to make it more difficult to vote. The 
particularly pinpoint um, practices that Black communities have used to get out the vote, like souls to the polls. It's closing the ability of polls to be open on Sundays in the future. And Kelly Loeffler is not exiting from politics. She is actually spearheading some of those Georgia movements to make voting more difficult for community of col- communities of color. And so, you know, this is this is going to be interesting because it's, you know, this is not, the credit should not be rolling here. This is still a very... Uh, live issue for Georgia and for the rest of the country. Yeah, you're right. It's not just for Georgia. There are something like 26 states that are passing laws to try to make voting more restrictive, which normally I would say, well, the Supreme Court's going to take care of that. But given the composition of the Supreme Court, I'm not so sure of that anymore. So, um, yeah. Yeah, And there's the precedent in the Supreme Court that says that that the racism is over. So you don't have any more needs for voter protection. You know, when I was in law school, A guy came from the U.S. Department of Justice and I interviewed with him and I told him I wanted to work on voting rights. And he was like, well, there's not really any issues with voting rights anymore. And Mm. like, oh, hello, dude. Right. Wrong. Yeah. Well, you know, we've seen that now so much so in the pandemic where, you know, it really was an issue of safety and um, and and voter access is so important. Um, And we haven't you know, we haven't modernized our approach. And part of it is that the potential for people to hack into fully online systems. I mean, is it just there needs to be a lot of creative thinking put to this issue so that we can fully enfranchise people. It is our right as American citizens to vote, and we should all be able to exercise that right. You know, and people in other countries are looking at us and like, this is insane. You have to register to vote. Like every person in other countries who is of voting age gets a voting ballot in the mail and they return it by mail. And that's the way it is done. And so this that we have still, and I mean, this all goes back, obviously, to Jim Crow laws that, you know, making it more difficult to vote. Someone technically has the right to vote, but we're going to make it as difficult as possible for you to do this. Um, it is one of the great shames, I think, of American democracy. And every time I am talking to friends from overseas, they are just sort of like, I don't know what you guys are doing over there. That is absolutely crazy. And and I don't know how people don't see through people who want to make it harder to vote. I mean, it's it's so obvious. It's, it's, it's you know, Trump trying to throw out votes in predominantly black areas and in urban areas. It's, it's, you know, this idea that, you know, we have to keep a certain group from voting because if they vote, we're going to lose. And to me, that is the most cynical, uh, evil, uh, you know, way to approach American democracy in it. And I find it very upsetting. However, I am super glad that Kelly Loeffler is out of the WNBA. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a baseline. And the thing is that the WNBA woke us up to a lot of these issues as well. And I think putting the emphasis on Georgia and seeing what's happening now, where you know two Democratic uh, candidates won Senate races, uh, and now you know having rolling back voter voter rights as a response to that, uh, you know, based on a premise that the election was stolen when, you know, multiple recounts showed that it wasn't. No, I think that it we should all be very awake to what's happening and that we can thank the WNBA for that for sure. 100 percent. All right. We have a terrific guest. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back here in the ladies room. I don't even know where to start with this next guest because when we're talking about people who have changed the entire landscape of sports reporting, 
This is a big one. So Leslie Visser was the first female analyst, NFL analyst on TV. She's, listen to this. She's the only sportscaster ever, male or female, who has covered the final four, the NBA, and, and these are all multiples, the final four, the NBA finals, the World Series, the Triple Crown, Monday Night Football, the Olympics, summer and winter, the Super Bowl, the World Figure Skating Championships, the U.S. Open, and Wimbledon. She was elected to the National Sportscaster and Sports Writers Association Hall of Fame in 2015. There was no one I wanted to be more when I was in college and high school than Leslie Visser, and that is still true today. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us in the ladies' room. Uh, Julie and Jane, two of my favorites, and I feel this is really appropriate because, of course, when I started, there were no ladies' rooms. <laughs> exactly right. And, you know, Leslie, I talk about this all the time. People, because I was a lawyer for 10 years, 15 years before I got into sports writing. And people always say, you know, why didn't you do it out of college when you were a journalism major? And I'm like, well, because I just didn't see that as a viable path. But you were one of the few women that I did see regularly. And I will never forget through tears after Duke beat Indiana in the 92 Final Four, <laughs> bawling our eyes out and watching you talk to Christian Leitner. And on the one hand, being so jealous that you got to be there for that moment. And in the same time, being so angry at Christian Leitner, I just wanted to fire him into the sun. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, eminently unlikable. Yes. <laughs> one of the great, and just, I don't want anyone listening to get it wrong. There might've been people who did all those events, but um, I did them all on the network broadcast of which, you know, there's only one place where a champion is crowned. So I was fortunate to be at ABC uh, for events or CBS, uh, because most networks aren't there when they crown the champion. But I got to be not only the first woman on most of them, but uh, really to do all of them. So I really, I thank you. I, even I look at that list and I say, God, no wonder I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, I, it I, is so funny to me that you brought up that very moment because I was a huge basketball fan right there. That was when I was in college. And I remember that same moment as well. And I didn't think about becoming a sports writer until a few years later when somebody said to me, you should be a sports writer. And I was like, oh my God. And of course, the role model that I had at the time and still do, Leslie, is you. Um, oh, so thank you very much. I bet I and I bet Julie and I are not the only two women to say that. I imagine there have been one or two more who've come up to you and said the same. Thing. I am sure. Well, um, I've had, uh, you know, the high and the low of it. Um, it's great that uh, really, I think young women, uh, particularly all the TV women are sort of my my ducklings. and. <laughs> I've stayed connected to all of them, but I've had the the startling or the down aspect of that. I remember once uh, flying into JFK and I was down at the baggage claim and, you know, there are hundreds of people there down at the baggage claim. And some guy came over and said, hey, oh, wow, could I have your autograph? And I said, yeah, sure. And I wrote it, handed it to him and he looked down and he yelled as only New Yorkers at JFK at the baggage claim could do. <laughs> he looked down and he yelled, Leslie Visser? Who's Leslie Visser? <laughs> well, it's not my fault. You know? <laughs> Who did he think you were? Uh, he thought I was Sandra Bullock, which... Um, wow. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. That's not bad, no, Leslie. Not bad, but way off. But everybody looked at me, you know, like I was the loser. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, if you know, only you hadn't gone and thrust your autograph at that right. guy. 
like that. I mean, I wouldn't mind being mistaken for Sandra Bullock. That'd be great, actually. Leslie, uh, go ahead. I I was going to say, it's been, um, it's one thing I've learned uh, having experience. When I was on, I was the first woman on Monday Night Football, and we were the number one show in America. And that was really a time, a short period of time where I experienced that you get on a plane and most people kind of knew who you were. But I don't know how people handle, uh, you know, like Jim Nance could probably walk down the street in any city in America and people would know him. But for the most part, I think we all inflate um, either our popularity or recognizability. Because honestly, if I walk down the street in Des Moines, you know, it would just be, oh, there's that lady in a baseball cap. But I feel like when you like you must have the best of both worlds then, because I mean, to to I think to especially to women, you are so recognizable. But at the same time, you know, I think everybody gets to those points where you're like, I want people to stop looking at me. I just want to talk about sports. (laughs) So, I mean, do you ever feel that way? Uh, I feel like I do. I cut right to the sports. You know, I the reason I wanted to be a sports writer was because I loved competition. I've, I've always said that I think sports is the greatest meritocracy we have in this country because uh, it doesn't matter where your father went to college or how much money your mother has. They cannot buy you a, a starting role on the Indiana basketball team or in the Super Bowl. So I, I loved sports that I loved competition and I felt like I was authentic in my passion for it. And I think that's why it lasted. I mean, you guys have been around you know, quite a while. And, you know, some people can get an opportunity for a year and then, or maybe even six months, and then you never hear from them again. So um, I'm really loving that all the women now are, they're hanging in, hanging on, they're doing great work at all at a very high level. Yeah. And it seemed like certainly when you came in, you forged a path and you created your own role. And then after that, it seemed like the role for women was sideline and it was sideline reporter for a long time with some writers. But now I feel like we're reaching a point where women are filling up all the roles. Finally, we're seeing, you know, women who are producing, we're seeing women behind the camera, we're seeing women in roles of coaching and refing, we're seeing women being able to be analysts and voices, not as much as I would like necessarily, um, but (laughs) certainly a lot more. Yeah, you know, we're spoiled. Um, you know, we want it so fast. We want it now. But it's it, the gates are open. Exactly what you said, Jane. They're open and women now can aspire to anything. Um, tell me what you guys think about this, because I don't have an honorable perspective. But people started to denigrate the sideline role. And I used to say um, there are only three people on a broadcast. There are thousands and thousands of sports journalists across this country, but only three people are watching the broadcast of the final four or watching any basketball game that's on. And uh, that is a role. It's a role closer uh, to the field. You have to be the eyes and ears down there. If you're a good reporter, you notice all kinds of things. Uh, It's become much more limited, uh, I would say, in the last eight or 10 years. But um, it's, I always chafed at the idea, oh, well, she's a sideline reporter, when in fact, it is a very honorable and um, should be a more respected role. A hundred percent. I think the sideline reporters, certainly that I've worked with in NFL broadcasts, are some of the hardest working people 
on the field who know more, right? Because they are, they're on the ground and they're seeing what's happening. So when somebody gets hurt, they know how bad it is pretty much right away or have a sense of that. Um, no, and I, I agree with you hundred percent where I chafe against the sideline role is that it was the only role available. And particularly when talent, um, you know, people who were hiring talent were looking for women, not just who had expertise and could do the job, but they were looking for a certain type, right? They were looking for someone who was good looking, who would be eye candy for the broadcast. And a lot of those women who did get hired for those reasons ended up becoming excellent reporters and doing an excellent job. So I don't ever say anything about, you know, anybody who gets an opportunity and and uses it to, to make themselves, you know, excellent at something. But at the same well, time, just my, my, my issue is when that's the only role that is available to a woman within the context of a broadcast. Yes. Yes. And that obviously, just like you said, now there are coaches and, and Sarah Thomas, and there are people up in the press box and people down in the field, but, uh, and in the booth. Uh, but I, I, I was laughing the other day, we have another uh, group of, um, you know, like zoom, um, like you guys and Jane, we've had, and, uh, Ours is just like a fun group, but it's Andrea Joyce and Mary Carrillo, all the people that are all our friends. And we were laughing the other day that Andrea started, Andrea Joyce started right after I did at CBS. And, you know, we were attractive enough, but, you know, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't anything spectacular. And in those 40 years, uh, well, 30 years, I guess, since uh, Andrea Joyce came on, that um, it went from Andrea and me, sort of the good kids next door who knew sports and did what we did, to now they know sports, but they look like Aaron Andrews and Carissa Thompson. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I don't think that's the standard across the uh, all the networks and the platforms, but it is, it's interesting how definitely that's part of the Faustian pact of TV that, um, you know, you better have some lipstick. Yeah. You know, I agree completely with Jane that, you know, I, Laura Oakman and I have talked about this quite a bit that it's, um, you know, it is one of the toughest roles, sideline reporting, because you've got to be able to get all this information and distill it down and spit it out in, you know, 30 seconds, you know, even if you get 30 seconds, like a, a pretty short clip and be able to explain to people what's going on. And I think that is an incredible skill. Um, but I agree with Jane that, you know, it's just that when that's the glass ceiling is is not moving past sideline reporter, that's the problem. And, you know, speaking of glass ceilings, um, I I have watched Let Them Wear Towels probably 15 times, Leslie. Um, this is a terrific ESPN documentary about the first women in the locker rooms. And I know you were part of that group along with Melissa Ludke and Claire Smith and Christine Brunnen and Michelle Himmelman. And, you know, it's funny because it's, I always, one of the things Melissa always says is, you know, we didn't want to go in the locker room. That's just where the interviews were taking place. And it's kind of amazing to me that here we are, you know, 30 years later, almost 40 years later, and we're still going into locker rooms. What was that like for you guys? Well, my first uh, experience with it was that in the NFL, it didn't happen for my first six years. So every interview I did was out in the parking lot after the players were done. And I know that must sound like the 1800s. You know, there were no women, so there were no ladies rooms. And the credential that I wore said, no women or children in the press box, which just seems so archaic now. And so um, like uh, right there on what I was wearing to go to do my job said I couldn't do my job. But uh, after the games, uh, at that time, 
Now we're talking the mid 70s. And at that time, I felt such an attitude of gratitude. Uh, I felt thrilled that I had this opportunity. Um, I, I really, I wanted to make the Visser name proud, the Boston Globe proud. And so I didn't complain. I didn't want the NFL to say, oh, a woman can't do that. And I didn't want the Boston Globe to say, well, we tried, you know, but it didn't work. So I would be out there in the parking lot, you know, rain or snow outside the, the original crummy stadium for the Patriots, <laughs> where you probably know the day they op- before they opened, they practiced, they flushed all the toilets and it caused a flood on the field. <laughs> It was the old Schaefer Stadium. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. I'd be out there in the parking lot. And in some ways, I think it made me, or maybe it was just the optimism in me, I think it made me a much better journalist because a couple of things. I had to do all the interviewing myself. I couldn't just stick a mic in there. I couldn't um, go on Google for anything. So I had to not only do all the reporting myself, but I had to know when to pivot. So that if uh, it was the Patriots, so if Steve Grogan were coming out and I went to talk to him, I'd miss Terry Bradshaw getting on the bus. And, th- and then, of course, there were the group of wives who hated me, you know, over by the cars. But uh, I think it made me really a, a much stronger journalist that uh, I had to do it. Plus, I had to face everybody. So um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that um you know, I wish it had come sooner. I remember once uh, Chris Brennan and I had a playoff game at the Giants. This was probably about 19, I don't know, 81 maybe. And uh, so you had to ask Ed Croak, the PR guy, who do you want to talk to after the game? You know, they bring them out. And we're in that tunnel under the old Giants stadium. Jane probably spent half your life there. (laughs) (laughs) uh, We were in the tunnel and we asked, of course, okay, we want Phil Sims and Lawrence Taylor. And, uh, you know, we're waiting, 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 waiting. And finally, Ed Croak starts coming up the tunnel with this guy. And Chris and I are squinting. And we said to each other at the side of our mouth, did this guy even play? I mean, it's like the <laughs> third string tight end. But, you know, the Washington Post readers didn't want to hear it. The Boston Globe readers didn't want to hear it. So um, we really you had to make do back then. But it, it was great. It was the very end of Pete, the legendary Pete Rozelle and the start of Paul Tagliabue, who opened up the locker rooms for women. And it just made our job much easier. You know, as um, you've heard from other women, it, it was the place of business after a game. Yeah. And, you know, Leslie, uh, women still today get told, you know, oh, you just wanted to go into sports because you want to see guys naked in the locker room, um, which is, you know, whatever. But, you know, Melissa talks about the fact- to go to. There yeah. are easier ways. You right. Know? Exactly. I have Google. I've, you know, I can, <laughs> I have porn. I can find porn if I want. You can, you know what you can do? You can just contact that guy from the Mets. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> But oh. Melissa talks about, I know Melissa, like people actually wrote about her and like she was this wanton woman who wanted to see guys naked in the locker room. Did you guys get any of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Melissa and I. Um, so she went through all that. The great Constance Mobley, the uh, of course, the judge who decided in timing's favor. And, you know, it was just so tumultuous back then to be a, a sports reporter, a sports journalist. And then when they finally opened up, I don't know if you know it only held for the Yankee clubhouse. So when the Yankees came to play the Red Sox, you could go in the Yankee, but you couldn't go in the Red Sox. But, you know, it was was a breakthrough and it was important. And, you know, tell me if you guys think this is worth anything. You know, we always talk about shattering the glass ceiling as if we're looking up. Mm -hmm. But I think what we really want is more men looking down with their hand to help us up. 
Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Yep, for sure. A hundred percent. You know, I do wonder about that because I, and there've been a number of times in my career where I've been kept out of a locker room by somebody who didn't understand what the policy was or, you know, I've had moments that, um, you know, made me feel like I wasn't being uh, taken seriously as a professional by somebody within sports. And, and those can be demoralizing. Um, but I just, I imagine you had an early moment in the parking lot where, was it Terry Bradshaw tried to sign your notebook like you were a fan? <laughs> oh, yeah, which I laugh at. Terry always said his autograph, well, how's he put it? Uh, my autograph was worth more than whatever crap you were going to write. (laughs) Even better. That's great. But like, seriously, how do you, you know, when you have, you must've had endured so much like that because you were literally the first one um, through and to do that and to, how did you keep your morale up? Did you have people you were, you know, people you were going to who could kind of help you process what was happening or how? Uh, Well, I had a couple that were, I mean, Terry's was, um, you know, I always say this, Jane, maybe you teach this too. I always say that uh, women in this business, we can work really hard. We can know the game. We can develop sources, but nobody prepares you for humiliation. Mm. And that's, um, Terry's was humiliating, but I was physically thrown out of the Cotton Bowl locker room in 1980. It was, remember the Cotton Bowl, the bowl those bowls were big then. Yep. This was uh, Houston against Nebraska. And they came around in the fourth quarter with armbands who needed to go into the locker room. Uh, Houston won it on the last play of the game. And uh, I took the armband and I said, oh, my God, it's a new decade. This is the greatest. And I went in with everybody. We all went into the locker room. And Bill Yeoman, coach of Houston, uh, turned around and yelled, I don't give a damn about the Equal Rights Amendment. I'm not having her in my locker room. And he came over. He was an old West Point grad. And he marched me out. And it was really, um, it it was uh, terrible. It was a terrible experience. Of course, all the cameras, everything goes toward me, which um, you don't want to be the story. You're just grateful. Uh, I was so proud to write for the Boston Globe. And they would give me these big assignments. So I left. uh, uh, It was the old Cotton Bowl. And um, it's like a coliseum. I don't know, Julie, if you've ever seen pictures, but it's concrete. You know, all the uh, it's like the Rose Bowl. And um, I went to the very top of the Cotton Bowl and just picture there's nobody in there. The hot dog wrappers are blowing around in the programs. And I just went to the top and I just cried. And I'll never forget. I don't know if you guys know the great David Israel, the great writer. He was one of the greats. He's been writing for TV, Law and Order, and that kind of thing for mm-hmm. about five years now. But he came up with the quotes. To the, he walked all the way to the top of the Cotton Bowl and gave me the quotes. And uh, I thought, okay, this is, um, I'm going to pay this forward. That's a terrific story. Um, you know, I, I, thinking about that and thinking about what you said about wanting more men to, to be reaching their hand down, that you know, there are a lot of guys um, who who consider themselves allies and who try to be allies. But, you know, when it comes to hearing an open job, you know, in their station or whatever, the first people they go to are their buddies rather than going to the women they know. Um, you know, and I was hearing about you crying. I know I've cried a lot. Jane has probably cried a lot, too. Are you surprised that, you know, 40 years after Melissa's lawsuit came down, that that we are still in a position where women are crying <laughs> about broadcasting all the time, about working in sports media? Well, it has to be balanced by the um, 
the, the glory of the job. You know, it's, I mean, if someone had told me, I, my, my dad uh, grew up in Amsterdam and my mom was lower middle class Irish and intellectual family, but no money. And that I would really be presenting the Lombardi trophy after the Super Bowl uh, is just such a leap of what's great about America. And I remember, as I mentioned, my dad grew up in Amsterdam. Visser is very common. It means fisherman. And he grew up under the Nazi occupation. Uh, he was not Jewish, but they all were starving. He'd gone to the same Montessori school as Anne Frank. And mm. you know, I felt like, really, am I really going to complain? <laughs> so I guess that perspective served me well. And I do feel that women, uh, I'm not sure, I don't know when it's ever going to be perfect because there is testosterone in the workplace and that is part of life. And uh, I don't know that um, that we're all going to be perfect in the moment, mm -hmm. and, but you do wish, uh, I, think, I don't know if Julie or Jane, you said that more women uh, got hired, that, um, that we do have men who are allies. I remember I had to do an Atlanta Braves playoff game. And um, at the end of the game, we all were going in the clubhouse. And Dale Murphy, who, as you remember, was beloved. And Dale Murphy said, if she comes in, I won't talk to anyone. So it made me the bad guy. But um, Peter Gammons, Dave Anderson, I think George Vesey, all these people stayed outside with me. So there have been times that, you know, I have depended on the kindness of friends. And uh, I wouldn't want that to be overlooked like many, many times for you guys too. Uh, guys are our pals. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have a great memory and, and this is something that kind of shows how far the business has come. When my first daughter was born, I was covering the final four in New Orleans and I was, I was still nursing at the time. So I, I you know, but being away from her, I had to pump <clears throat> my breast milk up because I was still nursing. And so this was a whole thing. So at halftime of the championship game, I needed to find a place to pump and I'd scouted it out. And one of my, one of my friends who was on the beach, Sean Brennan from the daily news at the time, watched the door of the broom closet underneath the court so that I could pump at halftime. And, you know, like, and now the NFL actually has a room that they put aside for nursing moms to do oh that very God. thing during, yeah, during the Super Bowl. So, I, you know, there is progress and I agree. Sometimes you do have to rely on allies until the systems catch up with what the needs are. And that's, and that kind of illustrates it for me, for sure. Well, I think one thing that stood out to me from all of us in the beginning were um, none of us was married. And that, uh, I think it helped us probably in getting the jobs, uh, I started on a Carnegie Foundation grant that they'd given to 20 women in America who wanted to go into jobs that were 95% male, which you'd think in 1973, 74 can't possibly be. No, they all were. A woman <laughs> got it for archaeology, a woman from Johns Hopkins got it for ophthalmology. But I remember all of us, uh, I don't know if you remember Diane Shaw, um, Melissa was single. Uh, Chris Brennan was, Jackie, yeah, Jackie was single when she started. So now look at that. Uh, everyone has families. People stay in it, you know, for a long time. So it's definitely evolved in some really great ways. And I mean, I know we have this show on CBS. The uh, It's the first um, and only all women's sports network talk show. Mm -hmm. And it's so great because it's produced 
Uh, the executive producer is the great Emily Deutsch. Uh, the two producers of the show are Julie Carrick, Amy Samuelson, and we're all women on the show. And we talk ball. You know, Swin Cash is now mm. with Republicans. We talk about Zion, Lisa Leslie. You can, you know, what do you think of that out of bounds pass? I mean, it's fantastic. Summer Sanders. Uh, you know, we talk about the Olympics, Dara Torres. So I am so proud of the fact that it's just all these women, not just talking about, oh, what it's like to be a woman, but we're talking about sports at a very high level. Amy Trask, only CEO. So um, that's maybe the proudest of everything I've worked on. I mean, people may not think it, but it shows the evolution from starting when there were no ladies rooms to now a group of extremely accomplished women talking about sports. Yeah, that that's pretty incredible. Um, Such a great lineup on that show too. Gosh. Yes, it really is. And the great Andrea Kramer, who we, we adore. Oh, of <laughs> course. Yeah. Andrea, that's another one. Andrea Dana Jacobson. Uh, no, it's really, well, Tracy Wilson, of course. So yeah, it's really, how come we haven't had you? Jane, you must've been on it by now. Uh, conversations. <laughs> I, but, I, but I do, I do love, I do love that show though. And I really, you know, I, I appreciate that it's, first of all, it's been on for five, five years, at least we're in our eighth, eighth. Okay. So it's been on for a long time. I mean, honestly, I, you know, I'd like to see, I'd like to see that given a more prominent role, like on the network to be something that, you know, you could see, you know, segments like that, that are, um, you know, where we get to see more of it. And then I'd love to see a regular show on a major network uh, or on ESPN that is, you know, women talking about what they know and what they played and what they've covered. Yeah, and we, we the range is incredible. The very first show we did was at the height of domestic abuse and both Lisa Leslie and Swin Cash talked about their experience being abused. I remember that show, yeah. yeah. That was very powerful. So yeah, if you don't watch powerful. the show, the show we're talking about is We Need to Talk. It is. Thank you. <laughs> no, I just wanted to make sure for people out there who aren't as versed in the women's sports world as we are. And we even were allowed to take chances. I mean, I, I pitched a story and we did it to do the great Misty Copeland, who, of course, is the first African-American principal dancer, ballet dancer with the American Ballet Theater. But I pitched it as not enough people know what athletes these dancers are. And mm -hmm said she's sure she's had as many stress fractures as lebron james so yeah. it, it was uh they yeah we get to we get to really stretch and have some time to tell a story so yeah that's where i hope women in the business are now we talk about jane and i talk a lot obviously about the obstacles that we face um as women in the industry but you know, my greatest moments have been those moments where you get to kind of forget that you're different from most of the other people there and just do your job. And, you know, yeah, just having a radio show where I can just sit there and talk sports. I, one of the things I always, like, if you're a person who's outspoken on, like, you know, domestic violence in sports, like Jane has been, or if talking about online harassment, like I have been, it's sort of like, I never wanted to be the one to talk about this stuff. I just wanted to talk about sports. I just wanted to cover sports. And I think the moments when you can do those are the most rewarding. And, and those are the reasons those are the days that you remember why you got into this. Yeah, when people ask me why I do what I do, I say Villanova 66, Georgetown 64, which was <laughs> 1985 Final Four, three teams from the Big East. But um, honestly, Julie and Jane, uh, we need shows like you're doing. You know, we need people to talk about harassment and we need people to talk about abuse. And we need people to say that um, we don't have enough Black women in the business. We mm -hmm. don't 
black producers. So, uh, yeah, you know, people don't point it out. Uh, the history of this country is that it's been controlled by white men and you must promote a revolution. Uh, I mean, when I was in high school, which was the late 60s, you know, I marched for equal rights. I marched for civil rights because people, they don't give up the territory without a push. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, some sports coverage this summer was super impactful for that very reason, you know, covering the protests um, after the killing of George Floyd and being able to tell those stories and amplify athlete voices and to give context to it. Because I think, I think we realized we didn't do such a great job around Colin Kaepernick um, and when he was kneeling and then never getting another job in the NFL and that, and that we need to tell those stories more completely and better so that the voices uh, can be amplified and, and, you know, really um, people can understand the lived experience of people in this country. Yeah. I mean, the great thing is that, and I, I thought of this when it happened, it actually made me emotional that, um, when Cam Newton, who's the, the great woman from sports illustrated when, she asked a question. Oh, um, Jordan Rodriguez. Correct. Correct. Thank you. And she asked a question, right, about a route. And he said, oh, God, that's so funny to hear a woman talking about routes. And, um, of course, I experienced that 40 years ago. And But the difference is that uh, when it happened to her, he, Cam Newton had to apologize, the NFL apologized, the Panthers apologized. And that to me is true, not just evolution, but revolution. So um, I do think we shouldn't uh, minimize how far it's come. It's rich coming from Cam Newton too, who was probably wearing, you know, like a top hat and a bolero tie, you know, <laughs> the, you know talking about like, yeah, well, it's weird to hear you talk about fashion too, Cam. I mean, you could turn that around, I suppose. I was so befuddled by that because he's seen other women in the locker. Like, what is he talking about? And he's also, you know, I, I was, I was actually really disappointed by that and surprised because he's somebody who has been outside the box and you think, and a lot of times, and you, you guys know this, having been in locker rooms, a lot of times if guys are outside of the box in one area, they can see your point of view a little bit easier um, and see how difficult your job might be. So I was surprised by that, that, you know, that here's this kind of you know, guy who, who doesn't necessarily think um, along the same lines as everybody else, but, but couldn't see her point of view. Well, I had a great, uh, a really great help and education and illumination uh, when I covered the Patriots in the mid seventies. And there were two players, uh, Sugar Bear Hamilton and Tony McGee, and I would go over to their house in the afternoon and they would play the old eight millimeter, millimeter tapes against a screen, you know, like a sheet. And uh, they would explain to me, OK, Leslie, here's the responsibility of the Mike linebacker in the 4-3. And OK, then here's what happens in the 3-4, the outside linebacker shades or whatever. And um, I really felt like, my God, I am getting the tutorials. I mean, I thought I knew football, but, you know, at that level to be authentically able to cover the NFL. And one time I asked Sugar Bear Hamilton, who's still a great friend of mine to this day. And one time I asked him, I was 23 years old covering the Patriots for the Boston Globe. You think I didn't go home and knock back a couple margaritas? <laughs> but uh, I one time asked him, Sugar Bear, why are you guys so good to me? And he said, because we know what it's like to be the only one. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had so, that experience in courtrooms too, that um, I, I definitely had 
older uh, black gentlemen coming to help me when they knew I was in over my head because they remembered what it felt like, which I was always extremely grateful for. That's so rewarding, Julie. That's so, I mean, that's what you like to think, what that's uh, our better angels. So yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think many times, I mean, also the Boston Globe, I mean, can you guys imagine that uh, this is obviously before everything, right? Streaming, ESPN, all of these, CNN, all of these, and the Boston Globe, everybody at his position was the best. It was like the 27 Yankees. It was Bud Collins on tennis. It was Peter Gammons on baseball, Bob Ryan on basketball, and Will McDonough on football. And I remember, like, I'd go to Wimbledon and I'd just say, hi, I'm Leslie Visser from the Boston Globe. I work with Bud Collins. Oh, Tyriac, what do you need? <laughs> And it was like, come on in, right? Go to the World Series. I work with Peter Gammon. So I have to say that was a tremendous, a tremendous advantage when I started. Well, Leslie, I have to say, um, thank you so much for joining us. And I would also just like to say to the woman who is in the top tier of the Cotton Bowl, you really did pay it forward. <laughs> you know, you really did. And um, I think you probably can hear from uh, from our experiences and then you know we hear from younger even you know women who are just coming in that you really did make a difference and you did pay it forward because the business is very different because you were here well oh god here much to me jane and you know of course one of my great honors was that you represented me so well in the roller derby when (laughs) on me i could barely stand up but i do not i I heard from so many people oh (laughs) Oh, eviscerate? I do. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What is this? What What was your roller derby name? Well, I buried the lead. Okay. Well, so I played roller derby for seven years, as I've told you 300 times, Julie. Yes. Um, but when I played, yeah, everybody has kind of a pseudonym, right? And so my pseudonym was Leslie Eviscerate. That's amazing. I can't believe we didn't start off with that, Jane. I know. I know. I know. Well, I know. it's a great. You know how you always want to end with a great quote. So, you know, <laughs> that, Jane. I mean, really, I've been so many people have said it to me. And, um, you know, when I get, uh, I guess, whatever it is, an Academy Award, you are going to be in there. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, that's that seems it's all come full circle then. This is, this is actually a great way to wrap it up. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today on The Ladies Room. Thanks to both of you. Tremendous. Wow. Having Leslie Visser here is, um, I mean, that was a huge dream of mine. I, you know, I never even thought that I would get to the point where I would be able to talk with Leslie Visser in my life. Like I said, I've been, you know, in awe of her since I was in high school. So uh, that was really cool. A hundred percent. And I, I just, you know, I just love that she's having the opportunity now it is women's history month. So we can all be excited about that. Um, but she's having the opportunity to now to kind of take that victory lap. She seeded a lot of careers around this business and, you know, she should be appreciated for that. And, and she certainly has been, I think on our podcast. Yeah, I, I think so too. And, and, you know, it's always amazing to me when, we have uh, these women on, like Leslie Visser, Andrea Kramer, Mary Carollo, um, who are just so down to earth. And the craziest thing for me is that they treat us like peers, which I guess <laughs> technically we are, but I never would, you know, be like, oh, I'm like a peer with Leslie Visser. Like, it's just, yeah. 
gets me excited. We're, we're the next, we're the next generation. We're the, you know, so, so it's nice. It's nice to have reached a professional level where that is possible for sure. I never forget. I'll tell Leslie Visser story. I, it's too bad. I couldn't tell it while she was there, but she probably remembers it. The first time I ever met her was in the press box at Madison Square Garden covering some sort of college, maybe the Big East tournament or something like that. She was there. She walks in. She is the queen of the press box. Everybody knows her. Everybody's coming up to her and saying hello. And at some point I see, you know, it's like, it's like when you're at a wedding reception, and you want to go up and talk to the bride and the groom. You kind of have to wait until everybody else is, yeah. um, is gone. Right, so right. I, I walked up to her and I said, hi, I'm Jane McManus. You know, I'm covering the Big East tournament for the journal news. And I've been in the business for two years and kind of gave her my life story. And I admire you so much and everything. And she was so sweet and she talked to me and I, you know, of course, cloud nine and, and felt like I'd just spoken to one of my heroes. Well, a couple of months, maybe a couple of years later, I uh, ran into her again and I was like, hi, you probably don't remember me, but she said, Jane, hey, how are you? Remember, I, I was like blown away. She remembers names. Like, it's not just me. She remembers everyone's names. She makes a point of it. And she, I think it's, you know, it just goes to show how important connection is in this business and how important it is to actually listen to people. And she is like, the, I mean, that she is the best at that and really was a role model for me in that as well. So jokingly, we were talking about this questions that you get asked over and over in interviews. And I said, you know, what was your favorite thing to cover? And she answered and said, actually, they sent me to the Berlin Wall. Which I was yeah. like, oh, <laughs> that's kind of a big thing. Right. Like, you know, just so one time I was speaking with her and, and we were talking about kind of our careers and everything. And, and this really applies because she said, you know, we may not have a billion dollars, but we've had billion dollar lives. And I think that's what she's talking about. When you were covering the Berlin, the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, that is one day in a billion dollar life. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about, uh, you know, careers and media because yesterday on Twitter, there was this big debate about unpaid internships, which I feel like we have this debate every couple of years. Um, uh, Jane Slater, uh, who is works in sports media, I didn't know who she was before this, but she uh, posted an unpaid internship and people, as they do on Twitter, immediately um, jumped on, you know, how horrible unpaid internships are, which they can be. Um, and, uh, you know, she <laughs> she tried to tweet through it, as the kids say, which which never works out well. But it started this debate about, you know, unpaid internships and who has access to them. And in media, in sports media especially, where it feels like so many entry-level jobs are unpaid or severely underpaid. And there's and that sort of restricts who is allowed entry into the industry. And I think, you know, this, when I was writing my book, one of the things I came across was that, you know, this is one of the least diverse, least inclusive industries there is. And I, and I think that these unpaid internships that sort of police who can put their foot in the door and who can't are a huge part of the reason. Yeah, I agree um, that unpaid internships are a real scourge. What I'll say about what happened with Jane Slater and her tweet, however, was that people reflexively, um, you know, kind of approve of the things that got them to where they are or confirm, affirm the value of the things that got them where they are. And an unpaid internship or a series of them helped her get the experience that she needed to be an NFL reporter. That Now, that can be true. And it can also be true that those are very exclusionary things. I, I felt like a lot of people teed off on Jane in a way that was 
um, not helpful and agree that tweeting through it doesn't necessarily work. But, you know, we've all we've all had those kinds of Twitter experiences. And I, and I bet if you sat down and talked to Jane and explained it to her in a way that didn't put her immediately on the defensive that, or bring up the fact that she had a family with money who could help her get through that, that, you know, that that would be a, a, a worthwhile conversation to have. Yeah. Um, be, because, you know, it is really, you, you might not see it depends, you know, you see the world from where you're sitting. And if you don't see who's excluded by those unpaid internships, um, then, then it doesn't necessarily, you, you might not reckon, you might not even acknowledge or know that that's out there. So I kind of feel like the, the, the teeing off part is not really helpful necessarily, but it's, it's rarely helpful. Yeah, it's rarely helpful. Right. But it's, you know, it's kind of what happens when you live on Twitter. Um, but at the same time, I think it, you know, it does bring up a lot of these, there are a lot of unfair systems that take advantage of people's labor and exploit it. And that also serve as gatekeepers because you're affirming the places at the table for people who have inherited wealth or family means. And that is, you know, that ultimately has mean meant, making sure that that middle class and upper middle class and wealthy white people have jobs and internships and the experience to better compete for those openings full time when they are paid. Yeah, 100 percent. And um, I wrote for free a lot when I was trying to get into this industry. I wouldn't do it now. Um, I wouldn't advise anyone to do it now. Um, you know, back at the time, it, I I had another career and this was a hobby that I was trying to, you know, get my foot in the door. Um, a lot of people aren't in a position to be able to do that. And, um, you know, when I was in law school, we all had, we called them externships that were largely unpaid. Sometimes they were paid, but you got credit for them. Um I don't know if that's better or worse, you know, to, to at least get something out of it. But, you know, one of the things when we were negotiating our salary over or negotiating our new contract for our union over at Geo Media was getting those um, those baseline salaries raised because with venture capitalism taking over journalism, one of the things is, you know, cut down to as few people as you can, pay them as little as you can, maximize profits. And you've got people, you know, being offered entry-level jobs in this industry at $40,000 a year, which is insane. So, yeah. you know, raising those is is huge. And, and, you know, thankfully, unpaid internships are starting to be outlawed. A lot of places are, are going against them because of policy, which is great. But, um, you know, with the way that the journalism industry is going, I don't know that we're going to see an end to people trying to exploit and underpay labor anytime soon. Yeah. And, and to bring up a, you know, just because as director of Maris Center for Sports Communication, we do put a lot of students into internships for credit in the business. And it's an incredibly valuable experience for them. Um, and they are, you know, you keep in mind, it's a little bit different because you are getting college credit for the work you're doing. And internships have to be there, you know, when, when you're doing it through the college, there are systems in place to try to make sure that that the intern is getting a lot out of the experience as well. A lot of mentoring and a lot of, of valuable experience. It's not just getting cups of coffee for people. Yeah, right, right. And, and so I, I think, you know, so those are really great. And we, you know, we take a lot of pride in looking for opportunities and um, being able to place students in a good situation that gives them experience that you're just not going to get in a classroom setting. So I, I see the value of that for sure. Um, it is the problem is once somebody has graduated and they need to earn a paycheck, 
And instead of a paycheck, you're getting experience for sure, but, but you're also giving your labor away and, or actually having, it's exploitive. You're having your labor taken from you. And it's such a competitive business that people feel like they're have to comply with those terms just in order to be able to make a living at some point. Yeah. And just to get back to the Twitter thing, uh, I'm sure you guys have heard you know, every day Twitter has one main person and your job is never to be that person. (laughs) Uh, If you are starting to get an inkling that you are that person, you should just shut down your account and run. Just like make it, just make it private. Stay off Twitter for a couple days. It'll die down. Someone else will be the main person the next day. And then you can come back and sort of like, you know, surreptitiously work your way back into the fold. But if you get an idea that you're going to be the person who's trending on Twitter, (laughs) you want to like cut bait and run. Oh, I, I mean, yes. I, I mean, I, one day, I'm sure that one day that it'll be, I'll, I'll step into that trap, but whatever. <laughs> you know, the thing is like, I, I did feel for, for Jane yesterday, not only because she's got my name, um, right. but also I think, you know, like, for example, I can remember walking into the Jets locker room and talking about talking to players about concussions and, you know, whether or not they'd have gone into football, if they'd known and, um, you know, casual conversations, not on the record. And, and most of the time players would say in the context of that, I wouldn't do anything differently, you know, even if they were out of the game because of a concussion. And, and I think it's because we, again, we reflexively confirm the experiences that we've had because they've made us who we are and we like who we are. Right. We all have to basic, you know, basically say I'm in a good place. Right. You don't sit and lament. You don't wake up every morning and say, oh, if only I'd made that a different decision when I was 24 and taken that one job, my life would be so much better. No, we, we kind of like who we are. We like our kids. We like our jobs well enough. We like the people we've met, all of these types of things. And so I think that that's part of the thing that Jane was doing was kind of just reflexively appreciating the opportunities that she'd had um, without necessarily realizing that she was in a unique place to take them and other people weren't. Yeah. And one of the things that I didn't, that this happens every time we come up, that comes up is that like Darren Rovell and Albert Breer and all these people um, sort of equate having an internship, an unpaid internship with hustling and with working hard. And that's not what it is. I mean, you, if you're working two jobs to try to cobble together your rent, you're working hard, you know? And so the thing that, that really galls me is seeing that equated with like I said, with hustling and yeah. with being willing to put in, quote unquote, your time, like that sort of stuff, those tropes need to go away. A hundred percent, Julie. I mean, that, you know, we completely discounts that somebody else has to hustle working, you know, bussing tables or whatever, which was, you know, my first job um, and, you know, clean toilets. So those are also things that if you have to do them for money, that is also hustle. And, and if you can't take an unpaid internship because you have to do the other kind of hustling, then, you know, you can't, it's just, again, you can't make yourself the hero of a story that other people don't have the opportunity to play. That is a great note to end the podcast on this week. We thank everyone for joining us. Uh, give us a follow on social media at Jane Sports at Julie DeCaro on Twitter, where we will endeavor again to not be the main person any day. Um, also, <laughs> uh, if you like the show, we'd love it if you went over to Apple Podcasts and subscribed and gave us a rating. Uh, we will see you here. Well, we will. You we won't see you. We'll hear I mean, us here. We'd, we'd like to. But you'll hear us here in the ladies' room next week. 
Thanks for listening. Take care.